Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good evening. Um, my name's Peter Hiscock and I'm the Tom Austin Brown Professor and so I get the pleasure of introducing tonight's lecture. Now, we traditionally hold this lecture in the first week of August and that's because that timing is uh, matched to the day identified as a bank holiday by the Bank Holidays Act of England in 1871. And the citizens of England... Um, who were quite jubilant at getting uh, an extra four holidays a year, called these holidays St Lubbock's Days in honour of the Liberal politician who introduced them. Now, Sir John Lubbock was uh, uh, a very prominent politician and financier, but more importantly to us, Lubbock, the fourth Baronet Avebury, it's got to be the best title, was born into a family of scientists and capitalists. So his father grandfather and great-grandfather were all fellows of the Royal Society and Lubbock himself was elected as a fellow in 1858. Now his father was a significant figure in Victorian academia. Lubbock's father was the first vice-chancellor of the University of London. The young John Lubbock was not only influenced by his family but by his next-door neighbour who happened to be Charles Darwin. So John Lubbock became the first student of natural selection. And under those influences in 1865, he published a book titled simply Prehistoric Times. There was a breakthrough synthesis of evidence that became a standard archaeology text for the remainder of that century, and certainly I still find it influential. And in that book, Prehistoric Times, Lubbock coined the terms Paleolithic and Neolithic to describe stages uh, within the archaeological sequence. And in coining those terms and perceiving those differences was an example of what he was trying to develop. He was providing a, a powerful, though, though obviously in retrospect quite basic approach to uh, using comparative methods to evaluate his foundational models about the human past. And to do that, he was comparing materials over time, he was comparing between regions, and he was comparing the archaeological signals of behaviour against the ethnographic observations that were being reported from around the world, Australia and the New World in particular. And he was doing all of those things to characterise what he saw, to uh, what he imagined to be uniformity and directionality in cultural change. Now, today we know that the evolutionary record is diverse and not a single ladder, but that approach that Lubbock offered us is still foundational. And we've scheduled the Tom Austin Brown lectures on that, on that date to reference Lubbock's influence on the discipline. And the lecture series also at the same time honours the gift to the university by Tom Austin Brown, a gift which established the Tom Austin Brown chair, which I'm very pleased about, and the Tom Austin Brown research endowment, which has proved to be um, really significant in uh, energising uh, our exploration of Australian archaeology at this university. Now, I'd like to just provide a brief, a brief background, uh, and, and in doing so, um, I'm just going to note some interesting parallels between Tom and John Lubbock. So, like Lubbock, Tom Austin Brown grew up as a child of the British Empire, part of the establishment. 
He was born in Sydney and his father and his uncle were partners in a successful law firm. His father was established in society not only as a prominent lawyer but as a prominent citizen and a cricket administrator. He's a, he's a good friend of Don Bradman and later in life he was awarded an MBE. So Tom followed in his father's footsteps. He, he came to the University of Sydney to train in law and um, uh, I met Tom when I was an undergraduate student and certainly his disposition was ideal for conveyancing. I mean, he had this eye for detail and a, and a rigour which is still remembered in legal circles when, when I hear people talk about him. But just like John Lubbock, OK, Tom didn't live next to Charles Darwin, but, but context was important in the development of his interests and intellectual direction. In Tom's case, uh, the family legal practice was located at Broken Hill, and Tom became fascinated with contact history, with the, uh, the way Aboriginal people had dealt with that history and the technology uh, that they'd used prior to the arrival of Europeans. And he became a collector of books uh, uh, that were recording Aboriginal lifeways in the contact period and a collector of artefacts from Western New South Wales. And it was those interests that drove him to retire early and enrol in undergraduate archaeology here at Sydney University in the 1970s. And his topic of study in his honours year was a particular kind of stone point, which he classified and measured and contemplated uh, in, in a very legal kind of way. And he subsequently obtained a master's degree from Washington State University for a thesis where he compared the form and function of those points through comparisons comparisons of ethnography with archaeological material and rather infamously a comparison of the damage on archaeological points with those that could be reproduced experimentally when dropping spears down a stairwell shaft onto the carcass of a dead horse. So well thankfully that's not the kind of comparison that, that um, our speaker is going to talk about tonight. It, it, uh, it, it does raise the issue of uh, the, the depth coming from John Lubbock of um, comparisons and their force, their force as a, an analytical tool. And so it's a great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Professor Mark Collard. Now Mark is Professor and Canadian Research Chair in Evolutionary Anthropology at Simon Fraser University. Mark was trained in both archaeology and biological anthropology at University of Sheffield for an undergraduate degree and then he studied hominid paleontology for his PhD at the University of Liverpool, after which he was a Wellcome Trust uh, postdoctoral fellow at the University College London. And then interestingly, his pathway crossed the tracks of Tom Austin Brown when in 2003 he took up a teaching position at the Department of Anthropology at Washington State University, where Tom had done his coursework. And by 2007, Mark had moved to his present department at Simon Fraser University, although he still held a part-time personal chair at the Department of Archaeology at the University of Aberdeen. And that's a very common pattern. Mark has been not only leading the Simon Fraser University Human Evolutionary Studies program, but he's held quite a, a number of adjunct positions at the Environmental Futures Research Institute at Griffith University, the Evolutionary Studies Institute at the University of Witzvorterand, at Uppsala University in Sweden. He's a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries in London, just like John Lubbock was. 
Uh, and I'm pleased to say that he is about to take up an affiliate position with the Department of Archaeology here at the University of Sydney. Mark's research interests in biological anthropology are, well, diverse doesn't really express the, um, the range. So things like um, Mark has published on the species identification issue in the hominid fossil record, explored phylogenetic relationships of hominids and other primates, um, looked at models of the origin and evolution of, of the genus Homo, explored a range of uh, data about the origins of modern uh, humans, looked at uh, the impact of thermoregulation on human evolution, explored the culture of both humans and non-human animals. And if that wasn't enough, um, because he did have an undergraduate degree in archaeology, his research has also been um, focused on processes that were responsible for the evolution of cultural diversity. So he's uh, explored topics as diverse as the determinants for variation in toolkit structure amongst non-industrial populations, the way we can use radiocarbon dates to investigate demographic change, the transition to farming in Europe, the colonisation of the Americas, the evolution of religion, and I, I, I won't continue to, to list them, but you can see there's a, an amazing uh, breadth as well as depth in, in Mark's research. And through much of that work, Mark has emphasised the analytical traction that is possible through comparative analyses following in and developing a tradition that originated with the, that broad Enlightenment perspective ex as exemplified by John Lubbock. So that's the subject of his talk tonight and it's a great honour to introduce Professor Mark Collard. Thank you very much, Peter, for the very kind introduction. Before I get into the meat and potatoes of my talk, I just wanted to uh, offer another thank you. So many of the people in the room will recognise this person. This is Robin Torrance from the, the Australian Museum. So I'm uh, thinking about this the other day that much of my career, which now spans 25 years or so, um, has been influenced quite substantially by some papers that Robin published in the 1980s, and in particular a paper that was published in this uh, book, Time, Energy and Stone Tools. It was a, a paper that um, I turned into a term paper for a class, and then that span into an undergraduate honours thesis, and then I picked up the topic that um, was described in this paper several years later after I'd done my PhD, and I've been pursuing it ever since. So. Uh, Robin has had a huge influence. I don't know whether she really knows this, but she's, she's had a huge influence on my career. So thanks, Robin. It's a shame she's not here. I hope to get an opportunity to thank her again later. Um, what I want to do to, today, this evening, is, is sort of try and uh, convince you that we, we need to add um, this comparative approach of uh, comparative ethnology to the archaeological toolkit. So it's a really a, a, a talk about how we do archaeology. I would like to suggest that comparative ethnology, and I'll define that in a minute, should become as central to archaeology, central to archaeological research, as some of the things that we, we, we teach our undergraduates on a routine basis, things like zooarchaeology, stable isotopes analysis, radiocarbon dating. I, I, I think the benefits of comparative ethnology are such that we should really embrace it 
as an undertaking. Um, I hasten to add I'm not the first person to suggest this. There have been calls, <coughs> at least uh, two pretty substantial papers by McNett and Ember and Ember, where this, this idea of, of embracing ethnology was put forward. Um, seems to have largely fallen on, on deaf ears. Okay? But I think there's, there's really good reason to try and uh, get the discipline to, to, to rethink its relationship with ethnology and, and to embrace it. There have been methodological developments that make our um, ability to do comparative ethnological work better, and there have also been substantial theoretical developments that aid it too. So I think the case has always been strong, but now I think it's stronger. Okay, so the roadmap of the talk looks something like this. I'm going to define comparative ethnology for you. Um, I'll then do a brief overview of the, the history of comparative ethnology, then look at the um, slightly strained or strange relationship between ethnology and archaeology. Um, then I'm going to turn uh, to look at the, oops, the way in, sorry, the way in which comparative research is used in what I think is probably archaeology's uh, closest sister discipline, which is hominin paleontology or paleoanthropology. And, and I'll use that as a um, really an illustration of, of how deeply embedded comparative research is in that discipline and what, what it could look like for archaeology. And then I'll go through some case studies. So I'll look at three case studies, which I hope illustrate the utility of ethnology for archaeologists. And then I'll just end with some conclusions. Okay, so definitions. What is archaeology? Uh, sorry, what is comparative ethnology? So I'm going to work with a broad definition here. Um, and we can say it's the comparison of traits from two or more ethnographically documented, so recent populations, with a view to answering scientific questions about human behavior. Okay, and if you look in the, the literature, I mean, the common alternative name for it is ethnology, but we also see uh, cross-cultural study as an alternative name, cross-cultural analysis, the cross-cultural method, uh, or cross-cultural comparison are all synonyms. Uh, also, comparative analysis or the comparative method. Okay. There are different forms of ethnology, of comparative ethnology. There are some which look at associations between behavioral traits, so <clears throat> looking at the relationships between, for example, two sorts of, of cultural traits. Okay. And then there are other forms that look at the relationship between behavioral traits and environmental traits for a, a set of populations. Um, and then there's another sort of dimension of diversity to, to look at here, which is um, approaches that, that uh, <coughs> differentiate on the basis of number of groups versus number of traits. So and this figure here from Smith and Peregrine from 2012, I think quite neatly captures it. We have a, what are referred to as systematic comparative methods, where we're looking at lots of different populations Okay, for a small number of variables, a small number of traits. And then at the other end of the continuum, we have what 
they call here intensive comparative methods, which look at a lot of different traits, but for a small number of cases. Okay, and then there's different approaches in between these two. So they're the, the sort of two main areas of diversity. What these methods have in common, though, is the notion of trying to gain insights into human behavior from the co-variation of uh, traits amongst groups. Okay, so the, the, the history of ethnology has been described by um, <coughs> McNett as checkered, and I, I think that's probably a pretty good description. Um, the first formal ethnological analysis um, seems to have been carried out by Edward B. Tyler, an influential early anthropologist it was reported to the Anthropological Institute of, of Britain and Ireland uh, in 1889. And this uh, study, in this study, Tyler basically explored what he called adhesions between customs pertaining to marriage and descent. And he did so in a, a worldwide sample of 350 odd groups. Adhesions here is, is basically uh, associations um, and here's an example of a figure from the paper um, that Tyler produced following his lecture. And essentially what's going on here, he, th these are, are all different um, marriage customs, three different marriage customs. And in the paper he's basically looking to see whether there's evidence for um, traits sticking together or appearing together in, in in groups more frequently than we'd expect on the basis of chance alone. Okay, so it's, a, it's really a sort of an elementary form of statistical analysis, really before statistical methods were developed, uh, which didn't happen until the early part of the 20th century. But he's really looking to see uh, essentially a co-variation between different sorts of, of customs and practices in the context of marriage and descent. Interestingly, um, as Hobhouse et al. noted with some um, sense of, of uh, depression in, in the 1915 paper here, the study had relatively little impact. Okay? There doesn't seem to have been much take-up of the method or the approach that Tyler was laying out in the paper. And in fact, um, it's not until this 1915 paper that we see the next sort of major effort in ethnology, and um, that's Hobhouse here, Leonard Hob Hobhouse. Um, he was a, a sociologist, in fact he was the first professor of sociology uh, in the UK. He was based at uh, London School of Economics, and the, the other two members of the team were, were students of his, and they published this, this major ethnological monograph in which they carried out a, a cross-cultural analysis of associations, links between uh, socio-economic organization, uh, sorry, between economic organization and, and social traits, a whole range of them. Okay, so it's a, it's a pretty large study. About the same time, this gentleman here is Alfred Krober, one of the most famous US anthropologists uh, based at the University of Berkeley. He started to develop what he called uh, this 
approach called the culture element distribution list okay, for uh, the Western North American indigenous groups. So he basically sent out uh, research assistants and undergraduates and, and, and PhD students out into the field uh, to create tables with uh, basically different tribal groups with lots of different um, traits, customs, technological characteristics to form a, a, a basically a matrix, a list of cultural variation. And he was interested in, in basically trying to empirically delineate uh, closely related groups of cultures. Um, intriguingly, whilst he, he and his students collected huge amounts of data, they didn't actually produce very many analytical papers. And in fact, I think the, um, the last time I checked, Kroeber himself, on the basis of this data, had only published two papers using the, actually analytically uh, employing the data. So a huge amount of effort. The data's all available, but he didn't actually do very much with it, which is intriguing. Um, McNett points out um, that again, whilst there's this you know, short period where this efflorescence of, of research, those studies aren't really followed up on, at least not immediately. They had relatively small impact immediately. And it's not until the late 1930s early 1940s, that we see ethnology really taking off. And that's with the, the development of what became known as the Yale School, or later the Pittsburgh School of Cross-Cultural Research, which was led by this guy, Pete Murdoch, who's shown here. Um, and he had a rather different approach, or rather different motivation, to Kroeber. He was very interested in testing functional or adaptive hypotheses using the cross-cultural method. And he had a, placed a heavy emphasis on the scientific method. He was also very active in terms of data collection. And I think uh, th this is a pretty astonishing array of, of initiatives that he embarked on. The cross-cultural survey in 1937, uh, the human relations area files uh, in 1953. This is still going and is uh, still a, a very useful resource. The World Ethnographic Sample in 1957. Um, the Ethnographic Atlas, he started publishing in 1963. And then uh, a very important um, data set, the Standard Cross-Cultural Sample, was released in, in 1969. So he's producing not only analytical papers, but a large number of data sets that other researchers can use. And, and it's really this um, Murdoch approach to cross-cultural analysis that becomes a sort of standard way of thinking about ethnology in the, in the discipline of anthropology. Okay, so Murdoch sort of <clears throat> from the, the late 30s through to the 40s uh, and all the way through to the early 1970s is leading the charge on cross-cultural analysis. Um, and then things seem to to take a, a turn for the worse in terms of uh, the role of ethnology in anthropology. Okay, so this is a, um, a Google engram. So this is basically, I searched for the terms ethnography and ethnology uh, in, in the, the Google engram search window, and this basically pulls up the number of mentions in, in the books that uh, Google have scanned so far. 
And um, I mean, obviously, one of the things that you, you can notice is that it starts to decline ethnology as a uh, as a mention in books starts to decline from the early 1970s. And the other thing that's obvious is that ethnography becomes much more popular uh, over that time period. Um, unfortunately, this, this engram, they only go up to 2000 at this point, but I suspect when we get round to updating it, that what we're going to see with ethnology is that it basically uh, <laughs> will head down uh, to a very low level, at least with, the, with respect to anthropology. And the reason for that is, that is there seems to be a move away from it amongst anthropologists. So um, there, are two, there were two major ethnological journals. Uh, one of them was called Ethnology, surprise, surprise. Um, this was founded by uh, G.P. Murdoch in 1962. But you can see here it was discontinued, went out of business in 2012. Um, and then if we look at what's going on in uh, the publications that Ethnology put out, the papers that it put out in the last 10 years of its existence, um, there are 179 articles uh, and only 10 of them that I can uh, figure out, only 10 of them involve comparisons of two or more cultures. So I went through all the abstracts from, for these papers and only 10, as I say, look to include uh, this sort of cross-cultural comparison approach. So that's less than 6% in the, in the major journal, one of the two major journals before it goes extinct. Um, and the other major journal it's a similar sort of story. So the other major journal is cross-cultural research. That was, uh, it's the Journal of the Society for Cross-Cultural Research, which was established again by G.P. Murdoch. So the energy of this guy was uh, obviously incredibly impressive. Um, and what's noteworthy here is that if you go through the corresponding orders, authors of the papers that have been published by cross-cultural research over the last five years, and what we see is that anthropology, which has been the discipline where ethnography is, ethnology has been typically uh, situated, anthropologists aren't especially well represented amongst the corresponding authors. So these are the authors who typically would lead a project. Um, they're substantially outnumbered by psychologists. So there's you know, more than uh, double the number of, of corresponding authors of psychologists versus anthropologists. So. <clears throat> Seems to be a, a decline going on there as well. Um, and it's worth noting that seven of these papers are actually in a special issue edited by anthropologists. So this probably actually over, overstates the, the role that anthropologists are playing in, in the Journal of Cross-Cultural Research. Um, it's a similar story when we look at um, doing searches for term anthropology on the Web of Science and then trying to find evidence for ethnology being used within that sample of papers. So I did a search the other day for 2009 to 2018, and there's over 5,000 papers that have anthropology in the publication name. And then I refined that sample, went through that sample looking for evidence of ethnology or cross-cultural research being used, and I could only find 14 papers in that pretty substantial sample. Um, that may be a bit low, I may have missed a few, I don't think I've, I've missed too many, 
So we're talking about less than 1% of the papers um, in that sample, actually in the anthropology sample, using ethnology, using cross-cultural research. So it really looks like there's been a, a steep decline uh, in interest in, uh, amongst anthropologists, declining interest uh, in ethnology. Um, and the last thing to look at here in relation to this is actually the definitions for anthropology uh, and ethnology. So we look at the, the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary definitions, we see a, an interesting shift going on. So ethnology here in 2002 is defined as the branch of knowledge that deals with the characteristics of different people and the differences and relationships between them. So that's a definition that's very consistent with uh, the sort of um, cross-cultural research that uh, GP Murdoch was doing. Okay. But if we shift to 2014, what we see is that this part disappears. So the, the bit that focuses on the cross-cultural part, the comparative element of the definition, disappears. And ethnology basically becomes the branch of knowledge concerned with human society and culture and its development. Okay, so we lose that cross-cultural element. And basically ethnology, if you look at these two definitions now, between social anthropology and ethnology, there's nothing between them. Okay, they're, they're essentially the defining the same entity, the same undertaking. So ethnology, according to the OED now, has lost that cross-cultural, that really central cross-cultural comparison component to it. Um, interestingly, whilst anthropologists have been turning against ethnology, um, other disciplines have, have seemingly enthusiastically embraced cross-cultural research. We've already talked a bit about the psychologists being the, uh, the most frequent corresponding authors in the cross-cultural research sample. But if we go, uh, there, are, there are now numerous papers in, in, in high-profile journals like Nature here, Proceedings B, various other ones where cross-cultural research is being carried out by people who aren't anthropologists. This paper is, um, as in fact, both of these papers are, are, are led by psychologists. And these two from prominent uh, economic journals are, are led by economists. So um, we have uh, an, basically a, an enthusiastic embrace of ethnology by non-anthropologists. And a couple of other indicators here. So this is a, a very nice database that's been put together recently uh, called Pulotto, a database of Pacific religions, cross-cultural variation in religious behavior in the Pacific, put together by, um, again, by psychologists. And this one is a, um, it's actually a database that I was involved in constructing, but the lead uh, academic on it is, is a, a philosopher who's particularly interested in, in Chinese philosophy and religion. So again, a major database, it's got a substantial cross-cultural component to it. It's not being put together by an anthropologist, it's been put together by a philosopher. So there's some very interesting shifts going on in, in, in how um, ethnology is being used within the academic setting, within the research setting. Um, <clears throat> okay, so now I just want to turn and look at ethnology and archaeology. And as I mentioned, there's been a, a, a strained relationship, I think, or a, certainly a peculiar relationship between ethnology and archaeology. 
So here's uh, the gentleman that Peter mentioned, John Lubbock. And, and as Peter mentioned, he was very interested in ethnology as well as archaeology. Okay, so he was, the, in fact, the president of the Ethnological Society um, for a time, as well as being a, uh, a prominent uh, archaeologist and the publisher of the first uh, archaeology textbook. Okay, if we go to the other end here, Henry Christie is another uh, early archaeologist. He was particularly important in the development of Paleolithic archaeology in the Perigord region of France, but he also was a major collector of ethnographic materials, and his collection was eventually ended up in the British Museum and forms a large part of the, the Department of Ethnography within that museum. And many of you will be familiar with this gentleman who I, I think has a really fantastic name, Augustus Henry Lane Fox Pitt Rivers. Um, one of the most important early archeologists, in, in fact, I think he's regarded as, as the first scientific archeologist in the UK. Um, did some very important excavations at various places in, in Wessex, in, in the southwest of, of England, but also was a, uh, a very enthusiastic collector of ethnographic materials. And his collection ultimately ended up forming the base of the Pitt Rivers Museum in, in Oxford. So early on, there's this clear linkage between ethnology and archeology span in the, in, the, uh, in the work and the lives of these individuals. Um, we also see that ethnology and archaeology are often linked in museums. So what you mentioned, the Pitt Rivers Museum. Okay, so that has substantial ethno uh, ethnographic, ethnological collections. If you ever get a chance to go there, it's, I, I think it's my favorite museum of all time. It is a fantastic museum, fantastic collections. And it's both ethnological collections and archaeological collections. Um, I've also mentioned the British Museum, and again, that includes archaeological remains, and it has also a department of ethnology or ethnography with all sorts of, of uh, recent artefacts. Um, Harvard has a museum of archaeology and, and ethnology, a famous one called the Peabody Museum, again linking together archaeological remains and ethnographic materials, and um, this is actually where I... I go past this every morning, more or less. This is Simon Fraser University's little museum of archaeology and ethnology. It's obviously not on the scale of the other ones, but we have both archaeological remains and you know, collections of, of ethnographic materials. And they're, they're treated as a sort of natural pairing, again. So, you know, <clears throat> we have early links between the two between ethnology and archaeology, we have museums treating them as obvious pairings. Um, some of the publications that have really influenced archaeological research uh, quite substantially in the last 50 years have also employed ethnology, have also employed cross-cultural research substantially. Probably the best known of these is this book by uh, Lewis Binford. So this was his last book published in 2001 before he died. It's called Constructing Frames of Reference. It's a huge volume, and it's primarily a volume about cross-cultural analysis. He basically uses cross-cultural comparisons to try and develop um, a framework for interpreting the archaeological record. Very influential volume. Uh, just a couple of more here. Um, <clears throat> Lawrence Keeley's book on before, War Before Civilization. 
include some archaeological work, but also a lot of, of cross-cultural data. And similarly here with Robert Kelly's book, The Lifeways of Hunter-Gatherers. Uh, again, substantial use of cross-cultural data in a, in a book that's influenced a lot of archaeological research, or at least a lot of archaeological thinking. But despite all of that, despite the fact of the, the early linkage in the, in, the, the, in the form of Pitt Rivers and, and Lubbock and co, the association mu in museums, the, the existence of some influential texts, it's still the case that archaeologists have not typically embraced ethnology as a sort of core archaeological technique. So it's rarely discussed in, in textbooks that we uh, use to teach our undergraduates. So I went through all of these and a bunch of other textbooks uh, for first-year students and second-year students. And it, you'd be lucky if there was more than a sentence on ethnology. Now, there's certainly not sections explaining uh, the sort of general approach or covering the sort of results that ethnologists have come up with. Um, so there's, it's really uh, missing in action as far as uh, introductory textbooks are concerned. And we, we rarely see it popping up as an approach in the archaeological literature. So <clears throat> I did a web of science search again for papers in the last 10 years, uh, looking at this time specifically in terms of archaeology, and then try to narrow down to find ones that used ethnology or cross-cultural analysis in some form or other. And my data that I found, I mean, this is not a, a final analysis yet, but it, it looks to be something less than 1% of, of all the archaeological work over the last 10 years that mentions ethnography or cross-cultural analysis. And I think that's reflected here in this quotation from Smith and Peregrine from 2012, where they say, although a large number of material indicators of human behavior have been identified, comparative ethnology has yet to develop into an important archaeological tool. So we have all these sort of linkages between ethnology and archaeology, um, and, and yet so far, we, we don't have, uh, we have not embraced uh, ethnology uh, within the discipline of archaeology. Okay, and in this section, I, I want to just, um, as Peter mentioned, my career has really been split between archaeology and hominin paleontology or paleoanthropology, and, it, and it's always sort of struck me that there's this sort of weird shift as I go between disciplines and I go between conferences, so you know, go to a an archaeology conference and then you know a few weeks later to go to a, a hominin paleontology conference there's this shift that is, is really curious in terms of the the absence of the comparative method when it comes to archaeology so hominin paleontology so the study of human evolution particularly the study of of the fossil remains of our ancestors is almost entirely dependent on comparative analysis okay so when we're trying to figure out what's going on with fossils like this, it's completely routine for us to use uh, skeletal remains of modern humans, modern chimpanzees, modern gorillas, modern orangutans, modern baboons, as, as guides to interpreting the fossil record. And I think it's fair to say that without comparative analysis, 
our understanding of, of human evolution would be really quite limited. So it's a completely central feature of what is our, I think for archaeologists, is our closest sister discipline. All paleontologists, hominin paleontologists that not I know of, immediately slip into this sort of comparative way of thinking okay, as soon as a, a problem is presented to them. So it's a feature of, of functional interpretation, of anatomy. Okay, so when we're trying to figure out, so this is a, a spinal column from a, a fossil hominin, when we're trying to figure out the, the implications of the lumps and bumps on that spinal column in terms of the, um, the locomotor strategies and the posture of the individual, it's completely normal for us to place that variation or that, that uh, anatomy in the variation that we see between modern humans, for example, and chimpanzees. Okay. And the same goes for all sorts of different elements of the skeleton. Um, our understanding of bipedalism and the evolution of bipedalism is heavily, heavily dependent on our understanding of the associations between anatomical variation in humans and chimpanzees and gorillas, etc., and what they're actually doing with their skeletal uh, anatomy. Okay, so comparative analysis is core to our understanding of, of uh, functional interpretation of anatomy. It's central to how we divide up the fossil record into species. Okay, so when we're confronted with uh, specimens, say that we've got two fossil specimens, we want to know do they belong to, to one species or do they belong to two species? Typically the way in which we do that is to use the variation in extant species as a yardstick. Okay, so we will take measurements on the crania of the fossils and we'll take the same measurement, uh, measurements on the, on the crania of the extant species. So it will, typically it will be chimpanzees or gorillas or orangutans or modern humans. And we'll basically use the variation that we see in the extant species as a guide to deciding whether these represent a single species or two species. So uh, uh, the, the comparative method is also fundamentally important in terms of how we divide up the fossil record. Um, it's also fundamentally important in terms of assessing the accuracy of, of these sorts of diagrams, which I'm sure you will be familiar with. These are all over the literature in human evolution, the hominin family tree. This is actually something I did on my, my PhD was a piece of comparative research uh, trying to figure out how reliable these are. So what I did was basically uh, go to museum collections of chimpanzees and gorillas, etc., take the same sort of measurements that hominin paleontologists have been taking on, on fossil material and replicate the sort of analysis that they've done in terms of trying to generate these trees and then compare the trees that I generated, the trees of relationship, I compared them to the known relationship that we derived based on genetic data. Okay, so it was a, um, the, really the first attempt to test the reliabilities of these, these sort of trees using the comparative method. 
The results were pretty depressing, um, but that's a different story. Um, it turns out that you know, we haven't actually been very good at this sort of approach, but the, the key point here is that the method is actually you know, sort of um, core to figuring out how reliable these, these trees are. So <clears throat> I could go on and on. There, there, there are so many ways in which thinking comparatively, thinking about the, the co-variation um, between traits is central to, to paleoanthropology, to, to hominin paleontology. Okay, it really is the case that we would be lost in terms of our understanding of, of human evolution without it. And so I, I would like to see archaeology moving in this direction to embracing this, this approach where comparative analysis is second nature. So um, on Thursdays, typically I, I will attend an archaeology seminar, and then on Fridays I'm part of a, an evolutionary biology discussion group. And always, the, the, you know, a bit like the, what I said earlier with the, the, the contrasting conferences, the shift from Thursday to Friday is always a shift in thinking. You go from th thinking archaeologically, which typically is not very comparative, to conversations with evolutionary biologists who think comparatively all the time. Okay? Whenever they're confronted with a, a problem or a question, the first thing that springs to mind is, oh, what does that look like comparatively? And so it's that sort of sense of, of, of really comparison as second nature that I would like archaeology to move towards. Okay, so now I'm just going to go through three case studies, which I, I hope illustrate the, the utility of ethnology for archaeologists. Um, the first case study uh, relates to the question of, of what drives cultural complexity. Okay, so there's been a debate for a while now, a few decades, about what causes the change, what causes changes in cultural complexity. Uh, changes in cultural complexity like the shift from the Middle Paleolithic to the Upper Paleolithic in, in, in Europe, where we see uh, an increase in the complexity of, of artefacts and the range of different materials being used. And in this debate, toolkit data from ethnographic populations has been a really important part of trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, Robin's work back in the 1980s forms a basis for this, and then there's been quite a few publications since, so I've been quite heavily involved in this area. Um, and there are really two main competing hypotheses. One is that changes in in complexity are related to environmental risk, and the other is that they're to do with population size. So the risk hypothesis, as I say, sort of traces back to, to Robin's work in the, in the 1980s, and she was arguing in this 1989 paper that really what's driving toolkit complexity is risk of resource failure. And the basic idea is here is that when resources are, are patchy and um, when resources are patchy, hunter-gatherers uh, will tend to create more task-specific tools to increase the probability of successfully taking uh, whichever resource package it happens to be. Um, task-specific tools, tools tend to be more complex, and then overall what we get then is, is a more complex toolkit. Uh, a few years ago, I, I argued along with some colleagues that this could actually be generalised, that we could think about risk of resource failure as, as basically the BA, um, one facet of a general problem 
that humans have of, of environmental risk and that technology is a, is a way of coping with that risk. Um, the other hypothesis is this population size focused one. Um, there are numerous different versions of this hypothesis. Probably the two most famous ones are by Shannon and, and Henrik from 2004. A bunch of different models okay, that differ in terms of the sort of thing that they're looking at, whether it happens to be traits or skill. Uh, but they have similar implications. And the, the bottom line is that they suggest that increases in, in population size due to the dynamics of cultural transmission uh, will lead to increases in, in cultural complexity. And similarly, decreases in population size will often lead to decreases in cultural complexity. So there's been a bunch of, as I mentioned, a bunch of ethnological analyses, cross-cultural analyses that have been done to try and test between these different hypotheses. And they, out of this work has emerged what I think is kind of an intriguing contrast. <clears throat> so if we look at the hunter-gatherer situation and look at hunter-gatherer technological com uh, complexity, it seems to be overwhelmingly driven by risk. So if we look at the studies here, there's four of them on the, on the board here, these are ones where the population size hypothesis and the risk hypothesis have been tested in the same analysis. And consistently what we find is that the hunter-gatherer data supports risk as the driving factor, and we can find no evidence for population size having an impact on, on cultural complexity. But when we turn and look at the food producers, so these are farmers and, and pastoralists, uh, the reverse holds. So there's not been as many studies published at this point, but the ones that have been studied, uh, have been published, um, where both the population size hypothesis and the risk hypothesis have been tested simultaneously, what we find is support for the population size hypothesis and no evidence that risk is affecting the technology. Okay? So it looks like there's this um, difference between farmers on the one hand, or food producers on the one hand, and hunter-gatherers on the other, in terms of what drives the, the complexity of their technology. So hunter-gatherers, it looks to be risk, not population size. Farmers, it looks to be population size, not risk. So this has this ethnological framework has implications for archaeology, I think. It means that we probably, when we turn to the archaeological record, um, we should expect to see uh, patterns of, of cultural complexity in the Playa Pleistocene being driven by risk, by environmental risk, because all the populations are hunter-gatherers at that point. Um, when farming appears in the early Holocene, we should expect to see a, a bit more complicated situation where cultural complexity in farmers is increasingly driven by population size, uh, whereas cultural complexity in hunter-gatherers continues to be driven by risk. Okay, so we have this ethnological work giving rise to expectations for research in, in archaeology. Um, <clears throat> and in fact, there's, um, there's a study that I and some colleagues did a couple of years ago where we, we find some um, archaeological data that's consistent with this, this picture that the ethnological data has suggested. We basically looked at uh, this question of whether point-type richness in Texas. So we took a compilation data from a compilation of 
uh, of stone artifacts from Texas, projectile points in particular, and looked to see whether the number of, of different projectile points was correlated uh, more strongly with, with proxies of environmental risk, temperature proxies in particular, or, or with uh, proxies for population size. Okay? And consistent with the ethnological work on the hunter-gatherers, we found that the, the point richness, the number of different points, which is a, another measure of, of cultural complexity, was linked to the risk variables, not to the population size variables. So, you know, we've got a link here between the, the framework provided by the ethnological analysis down to the archaeological record. We need to do more work on this, but I think it, it looks pretty promising. So that's one case study where I think we can say that ethnological analysis has led to, to insights that um, are important for archaeology. Second one here was a paper that I published a couple of years ago with a couple of students and a, and a colleague. Um, and what we tried to do here was to, to use faunal remains, so animal bone remains, from Europe okay, to try and shed light on the clothing used by Neanderthals and early modern humans. Okay. So needless to say, clothing doesn't preserve very well, so we have a very limited data set to work from in any period of, of, of uh, prehistory but particularly the Paleolithic. Um, and obviously, it's, it's a very important adaptive um, technology, potentially. So it's something that we really should be interested in. Um, previous work had fo focused on sewing technology, the presence and absence of needles. Um, people have tried looking at body, the divergence time of body lice and head lice to try and get at when clothing first appeared. There'd also been work on trying to just therm to model the thermoregulation of the hominins, um, the different hominins, and, and where they would have needed clothing. <clears throat> and the basic picture um, seemed to be that you know, people were arguing that Neanderthals probably weren't clothed, but modern humans were. Um, we thought maybe we can, we can get at this from the faunal data that we find on sites associated with Neanderthals and, and modern humans. So we carried out a two-part study. In the first part of the study, we, um, we went through um, this thing, the EHRAF. This is the electronic version of the human relations area files. So this is one of the data sets that GP Murdoch, Pete Murdoch, who we discussed earlier, that he set up. It's still running. Um, it's a really useful resource. And we went through uh, EHRAF looking for taxa that, so looking for species that are used to create cold weather clothing by small scale societies. Okay. So once we came up with a list of, of species that are used for creating cold weather clothing, we went back to uh, the archaeological record and specifically we used a, a data set uh, that was generated a few years ago uh, by something called the Stage 3 project in Cambridge. Uh, and they basically recorded animal bones for all the different Neanderthal and early modern human sites, dating to between 60 and, and 20,000. And we basically went through with our list of, of mammalian cold weather clothing taxa and looked to see the, uh, you know, how the frequencies 
compared between Neanderthal and early modern human sites. And the results, I think, are, are quite intriguing. Okay, so one noteworthy result is that we found cold weather clothing taxa on both Neanderthal and early modern human sites, so suggesting that Neanderthals were in fact using clothing, okay, contrary to what some people had suggested previously. Um, and the second interesting result we found was that there's basically three groups where they occur much more frequently on modern human sites than they do on Neanderthal sites. One of those groups are the uh, leopards, so these are the hares and rabbits. Okay. Another is the canids, so the dog family. And the, th the third is the, um, where have they gone? The mustelids. Okay, so this is things like the wolverine down here, ferrets and that sort of thing. Um, we figured that we probably didn't want to make very much of the hares and rabbits because of the food side of things. So it's perfectly possible that we were looking at a difference in food preferences between Neanderthals and modern humans with the hares and rabbits. But the, the canids and the mustelids are much more interesting than we thought because they're rare, ethnographically, they're rarely eaten. Apparently mustelids taste awful um, by all accounts. And what they're really taken for when people hunt them is their pelts. Okay. And um, they're t this, I'll put this one on uh, for a particular reason. So wolverine fur is valued very highly in, in uh, the northern parts of, of North America uh, because of its uh, particular characteristics in terms of forming fur ruffs. So it has, it, it doesn't frost up in the way other furs do. So uh, wolverines are preferentially targeted, or at least were preferentially targeted, for the creation of fur ruffs and, and other fur trim on, as you can see, this Inuit lady here, her parker. Okay. So we ended up arguing on the basis of this analysis that maybe we're looking at a contrast like this between Neanderthals and modern humans, where Neanderthals are making clothing, but it's relatively simple clothing, whereas early modern humans may well have been making complex, you know, thermally efficient clothing, including things like parkas, like this something along the lines of this Inuit ladies' parka. So that there's a, there's a difference potentially, we think, in terms of the complexity of the clothing of these two species. And that actually, if you think about it down the road, that may have uh, important implications for their ability to stay out in cold weather and hunt. <clears throat> and that in turn may have implications for the dynamics of the replacement of Neanderthals by early modern humans. So again, I think this is another example where we've got ethnological data being integrated with archaeological data and producing potentially new insights about um, you know, an important question in, in, in prehistory. Um, the last case study, we're going to move away from um, deep prehistory and move to uh, much more recent times. And we're going to move to the Viking period. And this is a paper that I did recently with a couple of Viking specialists. Uh, ben Raffield is the postdoc on the project, and, and Neil Price uh, is the, <coughs> the other author. They're both at the University of Uppsala. And what we did in this study was, was really combine uh, ethnology, 
So cross-cultural analysis with cross-species analysis with evolutionary theory and we use that to, to generate uh, an explanation or a hypothesis for one of the most um, noteworthy series of events or happenings in European history, the, the, the very famous Viking raids, the early raids. Um, so these raids began in the Baltic, it now seems in the, the 1750, and 750s, and then spread to England, Scotland, Ireland, and France, um, and some other places, and they lasted to about 18, uh, sorry, 850. So it's a 100-year period of, of, of raiding that we're looking at. And one of the big questions in, in Viking studies has long been, why did the Vikings go raiding? And we've, as I said, tried to use this combination of evolutionary theory and ethnology to shed some light on this. And the key piece of, of theory comes out of evolutionary biology. And it's something called the operational sex ratio. And the operational sex ratio is the ratio of, of males to females who are ready to mate in a population at a given time. Okay? And the theory suggests that um, biases, so biases towards males or biases towards females, will determine which sex competes for mates and, and also the intensity of this competition. Okay? And when we're talking about mating competition in a, in a in a biological framework, it's things like fighting, threats, courtship displays, mate guarding, and even sperm competition. Okay. And the cross-cultural data, okay, and also the cross-species cultural uh, uh, data, suggests that, um, that there's um, the biased operational sex ratios influence mate competition quite substantially. It's been noted in insects, snakes, birds, and a variety of mammal species. And if we look at the, the human record, the cross-cultural data, we see similar sorts of patterns. So there's a, a very nice study by Joe Henrik and colleagues from 2012 in the Philosophical Transactions of Royal Society, where they review a whole bunch of, of cross-cultural data <laughs> on the impacts of operational sex ratios in uh, biases in operational sex ratios in humans. And there's a pretty consistent story, it seems. So when um, se human sex ratios, operational sex ratios are biased towards males, okay, um, we see increased competition amongst men, we see an increase in risky behavior, there's more theft, there's more assault, there's more rape, there's more prostitution, uh, there's murder, an elevated level of murder by unmarried men, and there's uh, raiding. Raiding seems to be one of uh, the outcomes of male-biased operational sex ratios. And the, the, the cross-cultural data suggests that met young men in particular, they go raiding for prestige, they go ra raiding for portable wealth, and they actually go raiding for women as well. <clears throat> so the prestige, um, basically improves their social standing and their, their chances in the marriage market. Wealth also improves the chances in the, the marriage market, especially where there's bride wealth, where you have to have money to get married. Um, and the rating for women, as it suggests, is basically going to kidnap women um, when one's not available in, in one's own group. 
So male biased operational sex ratios have these interesting effects and one of the effects is, is rating. So that's the sort of starting point to think about a potential explanation for Viking rating. Okay, and so we were asking the question, well, did, did Vikings have male biased operational sex ratios? And there are a couple of uh, practices to look at here. One is polygyny. Okay, so this is where we have one man marrying several women. Okay, and there's this other institution of concubinage that's potentially important here, where a man and woman basically have sexual relations and, and uh, often cohabit, but without being married. And it's often the case that the concubine will be in addition to a legally recognized wife. And both of these practices can result in male biased operational sex ratios. Because they involve one male having multiple female partners. And in fact, you don't need very much polygyny in a society for there to be fairly substantial effects. So just to take a hypothetical example, here we have 20 males and 20 females. Okay, if we stack them up in a, in a, in a polygynous society, okay, with what's really relatively low intensity polygyny, so if we say that if the, the 12 highest status males all marry a woman each, okay, the top five marry a second woman, okay, so that's these ones here, okay, the top two marry a third, and the top male marries a fourth woman. Okay, that's a pretty low intensity of polygyny. But even then, we still have 40% of the males, these are the ones down here, who don't have a partner. Okay, so we've got a pretty big effect on the operational sex ratio of a fairly low intensity form of polygyny. Okay, so polygyny is potentially, and same with concubinage, a potentially important uh, contributor to, to male biased operational sex ratios. And there's evidence that the Vikings engaged in both behaviours, as it turns out. So <clears throat> one of the nice things of working with the, the, saga, uh, the Vikings is that we're in the territory of, of historical data, so we have the famous sagas of the Vikings, and there's, there's um, numerous instances where polygyny and concubinage is mentioned in the, in the sagas. So in this one, Laxdala saga, this gentleman here purchases a slave woman called Melkorta whilst he's away traveling in Norway and then makes, him, makes her his concubine. Uh, another saga, uh, Harold Fairhair saga, tells us that this Norwegian king, Harold Fairhair, had many wives and concubines. Okay, and there are many other instances in the, in the sagas that highlight the, the existence of polygyny or uh, concubinage, uh, and we also find evidence in, in other sources where there have been observers of, of, the, of the Vikings. So Adam of Bremen, for example, in the 11th century, he noted that uh, a Swedish man, according to his means, so depending on his wealth, has two or three wives at one time, whereas a prince might possess an unlimited number of wives. Okay, and uh, as a Muslim observer here, Ibn Fadlan, he noted that the Rus, so the Rus are uh, a Viking or a, a group of, um, an, the, the, the Rus are complicated. Okay, there's a, an, a, an, we can think about it as an ethnic group that has a large Viking component to them. 
Um, <clears throat> they're typically thought of as a, a branch of the Vikings. And Ibn Fadlan notes that the, the Rus king was attended by 40 slave girls who he says were destined for his bed, while the 400 warriors of his retinue were each provided with two slave girls. So again, we've got evidence here of, of concubinage going on. So we've got pretty good evidence, I think, of, of polygyny and concubinage in the Vikings. Okay. There's quite a lot we don't know still. It's a topic that needs further research. But it seems pretty clear, I think, that um, both of them occurred amongst the Vikings, and they probably weren't uncommon. Okay, so what that obviously implies is that the Vikings had male-biased operational sex ratios. So we can link up with the theory that I've sketched out, we can now link up the raiding with the, the biased operational sex ratios on the basis of the existence of polygyny and concubinage. Okay, but can we go further? I think, you know, there, there's <clears throat> a, a number of things that we can look at that flesh out this, this picture of the impact of polygyny and concubinage on Viking society and its effects via the operational sex ratio. One of the things that is very clear is that the Vikings had an emphasis on risk-taking. Um, so Norse ideologies really sort of in, encouraged this perception that dying in battle was a good death. Okay, and similarly, you know, <clears throat> dying whilst traveling abroad was also considered to be a good death. Um, yeah, so the, this sort of notion of, of death abroad being glorified um, and preferable to dying at home is, is, uh, is there. And we have this sort of, we can think about it in our terms as a sort of death or glory attitude. And there's this nice little quote here. But, uh, I've been with sword and spear, slippery with bright blood, where kites wield and, and how well we violent Vikings clashed. So there's a real emphasis on, on, on sort of uh, an embrace of, of violence and risk-taking in, in, in uh, Norse ideologies. We've got direct mention of competition between men for female partners. So the saga of Eric the Red basically deals with the brief settlement in North America around the turn of the 11th century. Um, and it says that this this saga says that during the third winter of the colony, many quarrels arose as the men who had no wives sought to take those of the married men. Okay, so again, fleshing out this notion, notion of competition amongst the men for female partners. Um, as a third way of fleshing out this hypothesis, it's clear that wealth and prestige were important in the marriage market of the Vikings. So, we see from this extract from the Saga of the Confederates, um, this guy is explaining why his daughters remain unmarried. And he says, no suitors have come forward who are both rich enough and well-established of powerful family and good personal qualities. So an emphasis on, on, on wealth and prestige uh, as requirements for Viking men to get married. Um, and here we have uh, a guy giving advice to his uh, 18-year-old son, I have won wealth and honour because I have dared to face danger. You have reached the age when it would be right for you to put yourself to the test. Again, this sort of search for prestige and, and honour as being part of the, the marriage market. 
Um, if we turn and look at the archaeological evidence, it's very clear that the Vikings were targeting portable wealth in the raiding and also targeting slaves. So we have, uh, back in, in, in Norway here, we have uh, you know, remains that, or uh, artifacts that were taken from the British Isles and taken back to, uh, to Norway. And this uh, is known as the hostage stone from a site in, in Scotland. And what it basically shows, it seems, is Vikings, a Viking male here, leading a slave. And there's substantial evidence actually for uh, slaving and for a preference for, or at least for female slaves being a, uh, an important focus of the slaving. So the annals of Ulster, for example, record Vikings taking women into captivity during a raid in 821. Uh, another Muslim observer records a Viking attack on Seville in 1844, where they killed all the men and then enslaved the women and children. Um, we've got other saga records suggesting women being taken as concubines. Uh, interestingly, in Beowulf, the famous Anglo-Saxon poem, it deals with a Danish court and the wife of the Danish king. Her name has been translated as foreign slave. Again, quite consistent. And then there's also uh, DNA work, uh, particularly from uh, Iceland, that suggests that the the males who settled Iceland were largely coming from Scandinavia, whilst the females were largely coming from uh, the British Isles. Again, suggestive, possibly, of, uh, of slaving going on. Um, and then lastly, if we look at the, uh, the composition of the raiding parties, they're again quite consistent with what the operational sex ratio argument suggests we should see which is that the raiding parties would be made up primarily of young men. Um, we've got several mass graves. Um, this one is a particularly fantastic one from Salme. Um, this is uh, a pile of, of skeletons, so bodies of, this is obviously an unsuccessful raid. Okay, so it's a pile of, of male bodies. Okay, and this one is, is a lone male body. And neatly, this one has a chess piece in the mouth, which is a king. So make what that what you will, but it's, it's pretty intriguing about what's going on in terms of the, the dynamics of these individuals. There's another one at Ridgeway Hill that's quite substantial in size, and St. John's College, also a mass grave. These are all dominated by young men. Um, and then there's saga evidence suggesting that young males are the ones engaged in, in raiding. Okay, so... Thorolf is reported to have spent several years raiding after he, he turned 20, gaining wealth and prestige. And in fact, Old Norse has terms for young men who are uh, yet to make their reputations and earn wealth, drenger, and, and uh, also for older, mature men have settled down um, things. So again, we, we're, we're looking at evidence here that is, is sort of consistent with this operational sex ratio-based argument that's very much informed by ethnology. So really, this, <coughs> this case study where we're trying to pull together eth ethnological analysis with evolutionary theory to shed light on an archaeological stroke historical problem, um, what we're suggesting is going on is that we have 
with the Vikings, a very long-term uh, situation of polygyny and concubinage. We have records going back suggesting that polygyny was operating in the first century of the Common Era. Okay, so it's a long-term uh, pair of, of customs in the Viking period. There's increasing social stratification goes on six to eight centuries. What this basically means, we think, is that the intensity of, of polygyny increases. So some wealthy elite men are having very large numbers of wives. Um, this increases the, the bias in the operational sex ratio. This leads to in, intense male-male competition. And ultimately, that leads to a, an early wave this early wave of raiding that uh, obviously had such a devastating impact on, on, uh, on Northern Europe. So it's, it's a, a hypothesis that needs further evaluation, but we think it's kind of a, an interesting way of putting together the ethnological data with the evolutionary theory and, and then combining with, with historical and archeological research. Okay, just to conclude then. Um, so, as I've mentioned, there's been this sort of long, very strained association between ethnology and archaeology. Um, but ethnology has never been a core tool of archaeologists. And I, I think that's really unfortunate because it has a lot to offer us as researchers. It has the potential to really help us illuminate the past in some important ways. Um, I think the prospects for archaeological applications uh, of ethnology have, have never been better. Uh, we have better data sets, we've got better methods of analysis, and we have better theory than uh, any of the earlier researchers could have dreamt of. So, of course, we have the older material. So, this is one of the, the pieces of work that came out of the, uh, the Krober uh, studies, and, and there, this one and, and a number of others are all available online. We have uh, GP Murdoch's HRAF data sets also available online, and then we have a number of recently developed data, databases that are readily accessible online. So we have a, a, a burgeoning array of data sets. We have you know, greatly improved methods available to us, so uh, in particular methods that allow us to, uh, to basically map cultural evolution onto language trees and to figure out instances of independent invention versus copying, which has always been a problem in cross-cultural research. And then lastly, we have a considerably more sophisticated theory than people like GP Murdoch were able to work with. So we have, in particular, a series of evolutionary uh, theories or bodies of theory. We have human behavioral ecology, We've got something called dual inheritance theory, which is really a, um, a theory that's focused on cultural evolution and cultural transmission. We have something called uh, niche construction theory that's become very popular um, in evolutionary circles recently, where, where the sort of key emphasis is looking at the impact of, uh, of human behavior on the environment and how that acts back on human behavior. And then uh, a fourth one here is is a burgeoning area of, of uh, interdisciplinary interaction between psychologists and religious scholars known as the cognitive science of religion. And I think that's got some really interesting 
potential implications or potential theory that archaeologists could deploy. So we're really in a situation where um, the prospects for ethnology and archaeology, uh, the use of ethnology in archaeology are, are very good. And so I think it's really probably a, a, an excellent time for us professors to start training our students in ethnology and to start including it in our textbooks. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.